This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Um, oh my god, we're recording this on 9-6, which is the opposite of 69. Oh my god, anyway, that's crazy. Well, one, it's backwards 169. <laughs> um, it's episode 169, Bui Tibi Nafi, Bienvenidos Bitches, and thank you for listening. Yeah. Now, Fruitless is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, able-bodied, white dudes. What? No. No, 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 no. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment come to leave out. I wonder why. Let me check my notes. Oh, yeah, because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman, and I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. It's not her fault, you guys. It's not my fault. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, mm-hmm. the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruitloopspod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops Patreon on Patreon. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors. Or if you can't help monetarily, no problem. Leave us a five-star review. Yeah. Uh, so, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today, we're talking about James Allen Red Dog, a Native American man from the Lakota tribe who was convicted of murdering a man in Delaware in 1991, but who also participated in many, many other crimes, including murder. Murder. <laughs> I saw the name Red Dog and I was like, oh my God, Q Nate Dog. Oh no, <laughs> look at who the little in the back door. It's that, it's Red Dog and uh, Death Row. I don't know. Anyway, uh, now, before we get into it, how you doing? I'm all right. Nothing much to report over here. Just, uh, you know, living the dream. Oh my God. I, 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 how do you do it? How does she do it, you guys? Now, uh, I am Okize and I'm all Rizite. So now let's get into some listener ladies. Okay. Thank you, angels. Oh, yes, child. (laughs) What is in that bag? Well, I wanted to say thank you to Sweet Vax for your five-star review. Thank you so much. And a hip-hop air horn for you. And you get a hip-hop air horn. And you get a hip-hop air horn. (laughs) 
we also got a voicemail from Chrissy. Ready to hear it? Yep. Okay. Uh, my name is Chrissy. I am from Chicago. I have been listening to you guys since almost the beginning. Wow. Um, Ooh, I and know. I wanted to just Thanks, drop a quick hello and say that I am so glad to be part of this lovely community. Aww. And I am just one of those people trying to make it work. And listening to your podcast all the time really gets me through it. And uh-huh. I am very thankful for you and uh-huh. all that you do and everything that you do to lighten our loads and our lives. Aww. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Oh, Bye. my gosh. You know, you have a wonderful yeah. day. You're oh, awesome. my God. Thank you. Chrissy, thank you so much. I yeah. mean, you lightened our lives. <laughs> <laughs> I am beaming. My heart is bursting out of my chest. Thank you so much, Chrissy. That was really, really sweet and kind. You know what the number is. Yeah. So leave us more voicemails. Leave us more reviews. We love you and we thank you all. We also got some new Patreons. Actually, just one. Her name is Elise LG. (laughs) We got one. Let me do the air horn. uh, I'm a forgetful bitch. All right. <laughs> Mizzy kills on sills on pills all dills all do double dizzard fruit loops my gizzard Alisa LG it's okay so <laughs> it's all resi it's okay so it's all resi resal resi Alisa LG hey <laughs> <laughs> you see what happens when you practice and prepare beforehand. <laughs> Great job. Yeah. (laughs) Thank Thank you, you, Elise. We are excited because that means she's going to be in the video club with us. Hello. Oh, yeah. At the end of September, we're going to be reviewing Untold, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to get into the story when we come back. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. All right, we're back. Remind us, Beth, who 
is our subject today. Today we're talking about James Allen Red Dog, a Lakota man from Montana who spent most of his adult life in and out of prison for multiple crimes, including murder. Murder. All right. Well, let's get into some stats real quick. Um, this, this might be a record in the stats session. Now, there is one murder victim of James Allen Red Dog. So rest in power to Hugh Pennington, his family, friends, loved ones, and anybody left in the wake of yeah. um, this terrible individual's crimes. Yeah. Now it's time to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is Montana and Delaware, USA, between 1990 and 1991. The area where the subject of this week's episode grew up is in the Fort Peck Reservation, located near Fort Peck, Montana, in the northeast part of the state. It is the home of several federally recognized Native American bands of Assiniboine, Nakota, Lakota, and Dakota people. Okay. Delaware and Montana are not close to each other. No, Delaware (laughs) is all the way on the other side. So um, that's where he ended up later. Got you. Now, with a total land area of a little over 2 million acres, it is the ninth largest reservation in the United States and spreads across parts of four counties. In descending order of land area, they are Roosevelt, Valley, Daniels, and Sheridan counties. The largest community on the reservation is the city of Wolf Point. The federal government established the Great Sioux Reservation under the Treaty of 1851, encompassing much of the area of West River in what is now South Dakota, as well as portions of North Dakota and Nebraska. As some bands of the Sioux agreed to come into agencies, others were not interested. Interesting. Uh, Culture Corner, this is from Minnie. Let me just put it out there. Colonizers of the time and lots of history books to this day like to talk about treaties struck in the American West as if they were mutually agreed upon. (laughs) Lies. (laughs) They most decidedly were not for the most part. Any Aboriginal peoples who did not, quote unquote, agree to the expansionist treaties were subject to a variety of methods to force them into doing so. And those methods were not kind. And once they had been forced into signing the treaties, it was still at the whim of the colonizers to break these treaties and make new ones if they decided they now wanted additional land or resources to be under their power. I mean, if, imagine if somebody was doing this to your house yeah. or your car or something you owned that was been yours forever. Until finally right? you're living in the garage. <laughs> right. What the <laughs> fuck? So make no mistake, this was not a negotiation of any sort, nor was it beneficial to the people who were not the colonizers. If anyone listening hasn't yet read the book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, I highly recommend it. It's enlightening as well as infuriating. Thank you, Minnie. Yeah, thank you. Army efforts to force the other Sioux to submit led to battles in the Rosebud County and culminated in the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876. The fight was an overwhelming victory for the Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho, Fuck yeah. who were led by several major war leaders, including Crazy Horse and Chief Gall, and had been inspired by the visions of Sitting Bull. The U.S. 7th Cavalry, a force of 700 men, suffered a major defeat while commanded by Lieutenant Colonel 
George Armstrong Custer. Five of the 7th Cavalry's 12 companies were annihilated and Custer was killed, as were two of his brothers, a nephew, and a brother-in-law. Wow. The total U.S. casualty count included 268 dead and 55 wow. severely wounded. They Six were died later from wow. Them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, it, we don't hear about those stories where the lion essentially gets to tell the story when yeah. it comes to American and Canadian history. Right. So. The United States forces having been defeated in this encounter, Sitting Bull led followers north. The Hunkpapa and assorted Teton peoples gained some supplies from contact with the Sioux at what was then known as the Fort Peck Agency. When military pressures increased in 1877, Sitting Bull led most of his followers over the border into Canada. The federal government increased its military forces in the area in an effort to induce Sitting Bull to surrender. In 1878, the Fort Peck Indian Agency was relocated to its present-day location in Poplar, Montana, because the original agency was located on a floodplain. Oh, well, well... The floodplain thing is funny because they move all the black and brown people onto the floodplains and the white people move all the people off (laughs) of it. Yeah. Uh, Hey, climate change, guys, don't worry about it. You'll be fine down there. (laughs) Um, Anyway, which flooded every spring. So the current Camp Poplar was established in 1880. That year, Presbyterian missionary Reverend G.W. Wood Jr. came from the northern Michigan. Oh, not the northern Michigan, just from regular northern Michigan (laughs) with his family to lead the Poplar Creek Mission. Without supplies and barely tolerated by the First Nations people in Canada, Canada, who were dealing with limited resources in the area of present-day southern Saskatchewan, Sitting Bull mm. returned to the United States. He surrendered at Fort Buford on July 19, 1881. Some of his Hunkpapa stragglers intermarried with other Native Americans at Fort Peck and resided in the Chelsea community. I'm just struck by the timeline, 1880 stuff. 80, 81. 1881, yeah. 1880. Yeah, that's after the, the Civil War. Yeah. Violent time. It's nuts. People are like, yeah. this is not our country. This violence. Oh, yeah, this is definitely our country. Side note, I've been to Fort Buford. Oh, you have? Yeah, it's in North Dakota. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. cool. So um, it's just like a house. <laughs> that's all that's left? Yeah, that's all that's left. Yeah. Wow. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> um, by, by 1881, the wild American bison, a traditional source of food and hides for the Aboriginal peoples. And I don't know if indigenous people call them bison or if they call them buffalo. I don't know, but they are bison. They're not buffalo. There's a difference? Yeah. Liar. No, we found out all about it when my daughter moved to North Dakota. Oh, really? What we call buffalo are actually bison, American what? bison. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's it. I'm to head to Everything I believed in is a lie. I'm done. Wow. Okay. So the, a traditional source of food and hides for Aboriginal peoples had been hunted to near extinction by commercial hunters and by white people who sought to starve out the Native Americans there and force them to become dependent for their living on the infrastructure and resources controlled by the colonizers instead of continuing to live traditionally as they had for millennia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. By 1883 to 84, more than 300 Assiniboine died of starvation while forcibly incarcerated at the Wolf Point sub-agency. Rations were insufficient, and the suffering was exacerbated by particularly severe winters. It's interesting. Forcibly incarcerated in yeah. their own land for doing what? Living, Living at my house? Yeah. <laughs> uh, minding my beeswax? Um, for for 18- being alive. 
Right. Uh, and not being white. Yeah. Uh, in 1884, as Wolf Point was suffering from extreme poverty and starvation, the Indian Rights Association convinced Congress to make a special appropriation for them. In the spring of 1884, residents built a dam to enable irrigation. From 1885 to Montana statehood in 1889, the tribes participated in quote unquote agreements. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you guys need to cut it out <laughs> with the U.S. government for redrawing the Fort Peck Reservation boundaries in exchange for federal subsidies. Yeah, there's always a catch. Yeah, it's so yeah. sneaky and insidious. It is, it is really Ugh. evil. Yeah. In 1887, Congress passed the Dawes Act, which provided the general legislation for dividing the tribally owned reservations into parcels of land under individual titles. Around the start of the 20th century, non-Native American settlers continued to violate the reservation boundary areas, then wow. encroached into the prime grazing and farmland areas within the reservation territories. As more and more homesteaders moved into the surrounding areas, pressure was placed on Congress to open up the Fort Peck reservation to homesteading. I, homesteaders are not whatever homesteaders. It's a euphemism for thieves. Yeah. Uh, on May 30th, 1908, the Fort Peck Allotment Act was passed by Congress. The act called for the survey and allotment of lands now embraced by the Fort Peck Reservation and the sale and dispersal of all surplus lands after allotment. They're just making up all these fucking yeah, rules. Yeah, they are. Uh, whatever suits them. Each right. eligible person was to receive 320 acres of grazing land in addition to some timber and irrigable land. They gave away hundreds of acres? Yeah. To yeah. Wow. Land was also reserved for use by the Great Northern Railway and withheld for agency, school, and church use. All land not allotted or reserved were declared surplus. Well, we got all this surplus land now. Look at all this land. <laughs> Look at all this oh, land. Beautiful, more <laughs> spacious skies of amber waves of fuckery. <laughs> In 1913, approximately 1,350,000 acres were made available for settlement by non-Native American homesteaders. Several additional allotments were made before the 1930s. Shame. Give that land back, y'all. In June 2015, as part of the federal government's settlement of a landmark lawsuit, $2 billion was allocated to repurchase fractioned land interests from those distributed under the Dawes Act and to return it to reservations and communal tribal ownership, restoring the land to tribal trust ownership. Wow. That's something. Yeah, it's something. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. Wait, this was 2015? 2015. That was my boy Obama. Yeah. Way to go. Yeah. Way to go, B.O. <laughs> Known as the Land Buyback Program for Tribal Nations, the Department of Interior sent offers to buy back land worth $230 million to nearly 12,000 individual owners at the Fort Peck Reservation and the smaller Fort Belknap Reservation. The educational history of the reservation included a government boarding school program or residential school that was begun in 1877 and finally discontinued in the 1920s. Missionary schools were run periodically by the Mormons and Presbyterians in the first decade of the 20th century, but with minimal success. The Fort Peck Reservation is served by five public school districts, which are responsible for elementary and secondary education. In addition, an independent post-secondary institution is located on the reservation, Fort Peck Community College, which offers nine associates of arts, six associate of science, and 10 associate of applied science degrees. In recent years, the quality of education delivered to the reservation's children has become a matter of scrutiny, which uh, we'll get into. (sighs) 
a little cultural note on the term Indian. We've talked about this before, but it's worth additional discussion. The term Indian is still used on many governmental documents and in many governmental systems, both in tribal and federal government systems that fall within the land borders that are now generally referred to as the United States and Canada. Though, be aware that tribal lands have their own names and are not owned by the United States or Canada. These are tribal lands with their own independent infrastructure and governmental systems. Respect it. Put some respect on my name. Thank you. Generally, it is not acceptable to refer to a person of Aboriginal descent in what is now called North America as an Indian, unless they specifically prefer that term and request it. Thank you. Mainly, that term is avoided conversationally, but still used as a status term in governmental documents. We won't be using it in this episode unless it's part of some official documentation or from a direct quote. Just doing our best. Now, depending on who you talk to, a person who is of Aboriginal descent in what is now called North America might prefer the term First Nations person, Native American, Aboriginal person, Indian, Metis, Inuit. Oh, wow. Inuit. Or sometimes Native person, though that last term tends to be the least preferred. Some prefer to be referred to by their tribe. Interestingly, the term Native is more prevalent and accepted in Canada. Oh, interesting. There is no such term as a Native Canadian as there is Native American in the U.S. As Canada is the colonizer's name for the northern landmass that includes numerous different tribes that have their own names for the lands, it is not considered appropriate to include Canada in the name of the Aboriginal peoples there. And if you think about it, I mean, the the Americas, it's this whole giant chunk of land right. from Canada all the way down to what's the down southernmost south, point of South, south America, America <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So it yeah. all is the Americas. So um, right. but this is golden. Thank you. It can be confusing for a person not of indigenous descent to navigate the terminology, but just ask if you're unsure. And if you make a mistake or someone corrects you, take the correction and understand that sometimes these terms can have a strong emotional response because I don't know if you heard the setting part. It's very, there's a lot of violence associated yeah. with these fucked up terms and um, uh, histories. Don't try to argue someone into accepting that the term you used shouldn't be offensive to them. I'm going to repeat that. Don't try to argue someone into accepting that the term you used shouldn't be offensive to them. That is doubly offensive, as well as disrespectful and insulting. Like we often say here at Fruit Loops, when we know better, we do better. The preferred term is not going to be the same for all people. So be flexible and open to learning. Thank you. Oh, my God. Lenny. <laughs> oh, my God. I just have to like I'm my heart is um fluttering like I like if I'm seeing my first love or having Aww. a crush or an orgasm. That's so so just giving oh. a. Oh, that <laughs> went. That went. Yeah, that was sorry. That went I, sideways. I do that sometimes. Sorry. <laughs> but it, I, it makes me happy. It makes me feel good. <laughs> Look at us. <laughs> so throughout this episode, we're going to do our best as well, but we are not of Aboriginal descent, so we might make mistakes. If anyone out there has some feedback for us, we, as always, are open to it. That's right. So now we're going to move on to the early life of James Allen Red Dog. So James Allen Red Dog was born on February 1st, 1954 in Poplar, Montana. He was a member of the Lakota tribe and, according to different accounts, was of full Sioux heritage or of mixed Sioux and Assiniboine heritage. 
He grew up on what is officially called the Fort Peck Indian Reservation in northeast Montana in relative poverty. According to him, his father drank heavily and supported his family through gambling. His mother helped support the family through sex work and also drank heavily. James had two half-brothers and eight sisters, and he turned to alcohol at a young age. James went to school in the Fort Kitt Poplar and Brockton areas. Though the last residential school in the area was closed in 1920, many of the public schools there to this day do not provide a positive experience for Native Americans that affirms their self-identity and culture or supports their intellectual growth. In fact, a high school in Wolf Point, not far from Brockton, has some disturbing data from recent years. At Wolf Point High School, white students are more than 10 times as likely to take at least one advanced placement class as their Native American peers. Native American students are twice as likely to receive at least one suspension, which mirrors a national trend. That's Awful. Yeah. Wolf Point's Native American students struggle academically. According to state assessment data broken down by race from 2013 to 2014, that school year, just half of Wolf Point's Native American students graduate from high school, compared with about three quarters of their white peers. Only 65% of Native American students were proficient or better in reading, compared with 94% of their white peers. And only 8% were proficient or better in math, compared with about half of the white students. In June of 2017, the tribal executive executive board of Fort Peck filed a civil rights complaint with the U.S. Department of Education, alleging that the Wolf Point school system discriminates against Native American students and requesting a federal investigation. Melina Healy, the lawyer representing the tribal board on the complaint, said, quote, the discrimination is so ingrained that people think that's just the way things are, unquote. Mm. According to the complaint and interviews with dozens of students and families, Wolf Point schools provide fewer opportunities and social and academic support to Native American students who make up more than half of the student body. What the fuck? The junior and senior high schools, which together have about 300 students, shunt struggling Native American students into a poorly funded, understaffed program for remedial students and truants, often against their will. According to the tribal board's complaint on the school's basketball court, a coach has used derogatory slurs in front of Native American students, such as, quote, prairie Indians, unquote, <gasps> and, quote, dirty Indians, unquote. Female oh Native God. American students were dropped from sports teams after giving birth, while white students were not, an apparent violation of federal law. Gosh, when they do this, they do this shit out in the open. We see you guys. <laughs> the complaint further states that in the most extreme cases, discouraged students have turned to suicide. Three months before it was filed, a Wolf Point junior took his life during school hours. According to two other students, the principal had just berated him for poor attendance. No. Yeah, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. According to a Montana Education Agency survey from 2017, nearly a fifth of Native American high school students in Montana reported that they attempted suicide at least once in a year, more than double the rate of white students. This is really upsetting and not even that long ago. No, nope, that's that's technically today's time. Yeah. And that's we should we should all be devastated by that information. Um, since passage of the Indian Education Act of 1972, Congress has tried to give tribes, Congress has tried, okay, <laughs> tried to give tribes more resources and responsibility for educating their children. But most schools that serve Native youth remain under the authority of states and municipalities, which have historically rejected tribal input and insisted on control over curriculum, funding, and staffing. Staffing is a big one. 
because yeah. having in, having indigenous or native american staff. teachers yeah yeah staff would also help support these kids and their success so growing up in a school program likely very similar to this or worse james struggled to form a secure self-identity on february 8th 1972 not long after his 18th birthday he signed up with the united states marine corps for a term of four years but ended up serving for just over 18 months at the camp pendleton marine corps base in california in 1972 he went awol for a couple of months and then again a few more times between 1972 and 1973. As a result, he was given a discharge under, quote, other than honorable conditions, unquote. He was removed from the service on August 17th, 1973, having been AWOL approximately eight months out of the 18 that he served. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. So now let's hop on into the timeline. What the what, Beth? On October 4th, 1973, just weeks after his discharge from the military and having returned to Montana, Red Dog drove with a couple of friends, Steve Lilly and Ralph Clancy, over to a place called Bill's Pizza Palace in Wolf Point, Montana, to get some beer. Ooh. Getting some beer somehow turned into robbing the place. And in the process of the robbery, they ended up killing the owner of the pizza parlor. Oh, my no! God. Wow. That escalated quickly. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Whoa, guys. How did how did we get here? So Red Dog was apprehended for these crimes and only two months later in December of 1973 was convicted of manslaughter and robbery because of the technicality. The manslaughter charge ended up being thrown out and Red Dog was only sentenced for the robbery, a 15 year sentence to be served at Lompoc Prison in California, a medium security federal prison for male inmates. Four years into his sentence on August 6, 1977, Red Dog, now 23 and known as a talented artist, he uh, used that artistry to escape. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay, Mr. (laughs) Dufresne. 
So he escaped from Lompoc along with fellow inmate Raymond Allen Tapaha by walking away from a work detail. Yikes. Wow. So the two had been free for three days when Levi Aragon, part Shoshone and part Comanche, and his first cousin, Stanley Thumper Large Comanche, went to a bar near Hollywood called the Moulin Rouge on the evening of August 9th, 1977. It was Levi's first visit to the bar, which mostly catered to Native American people. Levi and Thumper played pool for a bit with Red Dog and Tahapa, who he later described as being dressed identically. Um, so were they still wearing their prison uniforms? Oh, or, I don't, or I don't were know. they just wearing the same clothes? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that Weird. is interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Levi also spent some time talking with Moses John, a Native American from Alaska. And as the bar was closing at 2 a.m., Thumper invited what he thought were some new friends to continue the party and then crash at his apartment in Kudahi, California. He invited a couple of women from the bar to come to the party as well. And the ladies brought another female friend along, driving separately. The five males traveled together to the apartment in Levi's new 1977 Monte Carlo with Thumper driving. Ooh. The party people had some drinks at the apartment. Party people in the house tonight. tonight everybody's everybody's going to have, have a, a good time. time. <laughs> <laughs> and they also smoked marijuana laced with angel dust. Oh, that makes Yikes. people. We've said this before. That makes people kill people. <laughs> yeah, it makes people crazy. Oh, Moses ended up passing out in the living room. And by this time, the women had had enough of the partying and left around 4 a.m. Thumper also passed out on the other couch in the room. Levi told Red Dog and Tapaha that they could sleep on his bed and they headed toward the bedroom. Levi went to check on them after watching TV for a bit, but they were not in his bedroom. He went out to the bedroom door that led to the carport toward a spare bedroom to see if they had gone into that room. Turns out they had and surprise! Oh. Tapaha held a knife against Levi and ordered him to take off his clothes. Again, escalating Whoa. quickly. Wow, guys, Yikes. we should talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tapaha made him lie naked, face down on the bed in the spare bedroom, and raped him. Oh. When he was done, he made Levi, still naked, go back into the apartment with him. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Red Dog, in the meantime, had gone back into the apartment with a knife. Red Dog demanded the keys to Levi's Monte Carlo. But Levi said he didn't have them because Thumper had been the driver from the bar. Red Dog, angry that Levi wasn't handing over the keys, stabbed Thumper and then pulled him off the couch and onto the floor. Thumper was moaning and saying, wait, stop. Red Dog and Tahapa then tied up Thumper and Red Dog stabbed Moses while Tapaha raped Levi again. Jesus Christ. Mm, wow. Afterwards, Tahapa forced Levi to perform fellatio on him, then told him to put on his pants. Wow. By this time, Red Dog had found the car keys, so the two escaped convicts forced Levi out to the car. Oh, they're still escaped. I, wow, oh, yeah, okay. that's right. Uh, they're still right. escaped from jail. Jesus. From prison, wow. not jail, girl. Yeah, prison. prison. Yeah. Uh, forced Levi out to the car and into the back seat with Tapaha. Red Dog said, quote, I'm going to make sure they're dead, unquote, and went back into the apartment for a bit before returning to the car. Officials later determined that Thumper had sustained five stab wounds to the neck and chest, while Moses had sustained 17 stab wounds to the chest and buttock. Whoa! That's overkill. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Both victims were hogtied as well. Red Dog drove the car to Las Vegas with the other two in the backseat. Tapaha forced Levi to perform fellatio upon him two more times while Red Dog drove. At one point during the drive, Red Dog told Levi that he had been in prison for killing a guy. After several hours in Las Vegas, Red Dog and Tapaha drove to Las Vegas Indian Colony, a Paiute reservation, and finally fell asleep there, allowing Levi to make his escape. He went to the police who tracked down Tapaha and Red Dog. They were arrested on August 12, 1977 by the FBI and charged with murder. While incarcerated at the Los Angeles County Jail awaiting trial on December 20th, 1977, Red Dog married Carlene Bonnie Johnson, his then-girlfriend. Wow. Several months later, on April 10th, 1978, in the Superior Court of the state of California for the county of Los Angeles, Red Dog pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder for killing Moses and Thumper. On May 8th, 1978, he was sentenced to nine years in prison with 270 days of credit for time served while awaiting trial. That's an unusual sentence uh, for murder. Uh, His sentence was to be served concurrently with his federal sentence. In his statement to the deputy probation officer, Melanie A. Harrigan, Red Dog said that he didn't know what happened at Thumper's apartment since he was quote unquote loaded and drunk. From the report, quote, he cannot say with certainty whether he killed the victims or not. However, he does not recall being part of the murders or of seeing the murders committed, nor does he recollect seeing the bodies on the living room floor. He denies that Tapaha had any sexual relations with Levi in his presence, and he declined to offer any explanation how he came into possession of one of the victim's watches. Hmm, unquote. (laughs) In her evaluation, Ms. Harrigan opined that the defendant, quote, has shown absolutely no remorse for his actions and has, in fact, attempted to escape all responsibility for either the victim's death or for the cruelty inflicted on the third victim, unquote. Uh, We're actually not sure. We have no clue. No idea. Why he was only given nine years for this, not given any extra time for escaping, and was allowed to serve the additional sentence concurrently instead of consecutively. But that's what happened. Yeah, that it's like he didn't get punished at all. Judge, please explain. <laughs> Now back in custody, Red Dog was transferred to Leavenworth, a medium security prison, to continue serving time. And on December 10th, 1979, he was transferred again, this time to the Marion Federal Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. This second transfer was disciplinary, caused by Red Dog's alleged smuggling of drugs into Leavenworth. Philatoon coming on. Marion was the only maximum security facility within the federal prison system, and Red Dog claimed to have enjoyed it there. Oh, good. In a later <laughs> deposition, he explained, quote, you didn't have to work. You had a lot of free time. There was a lot of drugs and a lot of gambling, stuff like that, that you could get into. It was the best time possible. Oh, my God. That is so funny. Prison? There was a lot of money to be made and a lot of drugs, unquote. Now, do you think he liked drugs? He (laughs) seems like he likes drugs. What about about drugs, though? Were there drugs? I think there might have been drugs. Doing drugs. Yeah, I think he did like drugs. I think so, too. But we've said this before. When you can't afford a vacation, drugs is where it's at. In, in this case, he couldn't, in this couldn't case, yeah, take he a vacation. Couldn't even, right, yeah. 
<laughs> Fred Dog got into more than just drugs, though. While serving time at Marion Federal Penitentiary, he became associated with the Mexican Mafia, or EME, a prison gang at Marion involved with narcotics, assaults, extortion, and gambling. Red Dog worked as a mule for them, smuggling drugs into prison. Well, Red Dog apparently developed a problem with one of the gang members, Joseph Ortega, who he accused of stealing from him. The EME had already started to see Ortega as a quote-unquote locker thief, and he had become an embarrassment to them. Red Dog suggested to members that Ortega be given a hot shot, which is a lethal dose of heroin, and the gang agreed. The hot shot was delivered to Red Dog through a prison visitor and marked by a distinctive colored balloon, lime green. Stay away from them, lime oh, green balloons. Oops. Girl, watch out. Girl, you a danger. <laughs> now, let me tell you about this. <laughs> okay, I'm just excited to hear you say the next part. <laughs> Look, the my, balloon, my friend's going to say it. <laughs> the balloon goes up the booty hole. Booty hole! <laughs> For those who are unfamiliar. <laughs> <laughs> big booty holes, big booty holes. Oh. <laughs> he smuggled the balloon that way into the prison and delivered it to the gang. I hope he washed his hands. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That is one concern, right? Yeah. Man, let me tell you what happened. So not long after this, Ortega died from an overdose of heroin on February 23rd, 1983. After Ortega's death, Red Dog claimed to fear for his own safety and decided to talk with federal authorities, in part because of the information he provided. Certain members of the EME who were in Ortega's cell when the lethal dose was administered, were indicted in connection with Ortega's death. There were, however, no convictions. Red Dog was not charged with the murder because he had not administered the overdose himself, though he was the one who obtained the drugs for the overdose. Interesting. Now, Red hmm. Dog also admitted to being a bookkeeper for a member of the EME. He is like Andy Dufresne, mm -hmm. a member of the EME, and that he brought in drugs for them, admitting to smuggling in heroin, barbiturates, and amphetamines, and cannabis. He said he also kept books for a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. Wow. What? Wow, mending fences. <laughs> and admitted to being personally involved in extortion. <laughs> I'm fired. <laughs> no, that was hilarious. Okay. <laughs> mending fences. <laughs> During the talks with the feds, Red Dog boasted about smuggling weapons in two, saying, quote, I brought in some 22s and some 38 shells. There was a lot of zip guns around. I made six of them, and there was a lot of shanks floating around, unquote. Zip guns are homemade guns, right? Yes, we yes. About this in a, yeah, we learned about this the, at an, New on York another killer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. So uh, his talks with the feds afforded him some protection from the gang while in prison. And on September 24th, 1985, three years before completing his 15 year sentence, he was released on parole and into the federal witness protection program. Wow. Unharmed by the EME. He then returned to Montana. About nine months after Red Dog's release on June 3rd, 1986, Dale Dornick was on duty at the Get and Go, a gas station convenience store located uh -huh. in Wolf Point, Montana, when Red Dog came in with a woman. The two were getting some hot dogs and other food items when Dale mm. noticed what appeared to be a bulge underneath Red Dog's jacket that looked to be a shoplifted item. By the way, gas station hot dogs, very underrated. Now, he <laughs> approached and asked to see what was under the jacket. Red Dog opened the jacket, partially revealing a handgun in a shoulder holster. 
started to reach for it, asking, quote, do you really want to see it? Unquote. Dale backed off and returned behind the counter, letting Red Dog and his friend leave, though he did not take note of their car and license number. Later that evening, a police officer stopped by the store and Dale explained what had happened. What had happened was... <laughs> <laughs> Matter of fact, yeah. <laughs> Concerned, the officer left in search of the car. When he found it, there were a few people in the car and he approached carefully. He asked Red Dog to step from the vehicle, but instead... Red Dog reached for his concealed weapon. The officer drew his service revolver, at which point Red Dog complied and got out of the car. He was arrested and handcuffed and found in possession of a 22 caliber Ruger semi-automatic pistol and shoulder holster, which were seized. The officer noted that the safety of the pistol was off. One round was already chambered and seven rounds were in the magazine. The holster was homemade, fashioned out of what looked like Duct tape. Interesting. Duct tape shoulder holster. <laughs> so it's not, I'm picturing the leather ones in the movie. It's it's not leather. It's no, made it's from No, it's made tape. out of duct tape. Wow. Yeah. I actually love this. Yeah. I might make this a project with my. Well, he is an artist. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Look at him. He's so resourceful. I love things made out of duct tape. <laughs> oh my God. Don't we all? A yeah. Whole duct tape dress, duct tape yep. shoes. I love, duct tape everything. I love looking at those duct tape dresses. <laughs> Head to toe duct tape. Duct tape. Yep. Hello. <laughs> Class. Sophistication. So my daughter at one time, she probably still is, but at one time she was like really fascinated with all the things that people in prison make out of like oh, trash and stuff. Everything. Yeah. Yeah, everything. Ooh, I, like I love they're so creative, she would say. <laughs> they really they really are. They really yeah. are. Check out prison TikTok. It's amazing. Prison TikTok. Oh, wow. Girl, they make makeup out of colored pencils. Oh, my God. Of, um, they take the ink off of packaging from like food and stuff or magazines uh -huh. and make eyeliner or blush or lipstick. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Very creative. I mean, man, <laughs> when people, you know, people do what they got to do. You know, what yeah, they got to they got to do what they got to do. And when you're forced to uh, use things that like other people would consider trash, uh, you mm -hmm. just figure it out, man. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. An indictment was returned against him in the United States District Court for the District of Montana for possession of a firearm. And on July 10th, 1986, Red Dog pleaded guilty to the charge and received a two year sentence. On February 2nd, 1988, Red Dog was again. Why? Released from prison on parole into the Federal Witness Protection Program and was relocated to Wilmington, Delaware. That's how he got there uh, with his wife, Bonnie. In June of 1989, he violated his parole by leaving Delaware without authorization and was returned to prison on June 18th of that year. Just before Juneteenth. <laughs> Just kidding. He also could not seem to keep himself out of prison. On June 27th, 1990, he was released on parole again and into the Witness Protection Program in Delaware. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? 
would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? <sighs> Download American Vigilante now. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Just short of eight months after his release from prison, in the afternoon and evening of February 9th, 1991, Red Dog, now 37 years old, indulged in some recreational drinking and cocaine snorting while at the Millsboro Bowling Alley in Delaware. <laughs> cocaine I've snorting, that's my favorite. Corca- <laughs> co- <laughs> wow. Uh, you, uh, can you picture pulling up? Uh, I'd like a size 10 shoe as well as a flat surface for snorting <laughs> cocaine. At the same time, 30-year-old Hugh Pennington was working at the local Tally Home Motor Lodge as a night auditor. Hugh lived with his mother, Alyssa Pennington, in a house in Newcastle County, Delaware. That same evening, Elisa Pennington and Red Dog's wife, Bonnie, who had been friends for about six years, were together at the Pennington residence. They had agreed to spend that evening together because Red Dog was going to be away. Hugh Pennington arrived home at about 9 p.m. that evening. His mother and Bonnie were watching a rented movie. Remember those VHSs? Yeah. Be kind, rewind. Yeah. But Hugh decided not to join them this time because of his job. He usually went to bed early. On nights when he was not working, he would often get up later to watch television on his own. Not long after Hugh had gone to bed at about 9.30 p.m., Elisa and Bonnie left to go over to Bonnie and Red Dog's place, an apartment in Belafonte. They left the door to the Pennington home unlocked when they left. Sometime after Alyssa Pennington and Bonnie left, Red Dog arrived at the Pennington's home. He let himself in and encountered Hugh in the kitchen. Wielding a knife, Red Dog attacked Hugh and then forced him into the basement workshop. There, Red Dog bound Hugh's hands and feet with duct tape and electrical cord. He then cut Hugh's throat repeatedly with the knife, nearly decapitating him. But why? I don't, I don't, I don't why? know. I, he was wrong. I, I'm puzzled. Yeah. I'm puzzled. Yeah. After murdering Hugh, Red Dog arrived at his own home shortly after midnight. He entered holding a whiskey bottle and found Bonnie and Elisa hanging out in the living room. Red Dog stated that he needed to help a friend tow his van out of a ditch. But ditches are made of dirt, not blood and human flesh. <laughs> I just imagine because he's probably covered, right? And stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, a me- yeah. and a mess. So yeah, you would think so. He's yeah, like, very strange. Oh, it's just mud. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. I see. I know. Mm-mm. Weird. The uh, location that Red Dog gave for the van was near the Pennington home. And he asked Alyssa or I, Lisa, to give him a ride. Oh, you Since- know what? I think it's Elsa. Elsa. Oh, Elsa. Okay. Elsa. Yeah, we've been okay. saying it wrong the whole time. Okay. We did apologize in advance, though. True, true. (laughs) We (laughs) fucked it up, guys. Her name is Elsa. (laughs) We did. Elsa. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, So he asked Elsa to give him a ride. Since it sounded like it was close to her home, she agreed. Red Dog picked up a coil of clothesline as he left with Elsa, saying he would use it as a tow rope. 
Mm. Okay. After they left the house and were driving down the road, Red Dog told Ailsa that the story about the van in the ditch was untrue. He told her that what he really wanted was to ask her son about getting some lithium, a medication which he knew that Hugh was taking to control depression. When Elsa Pennington told him that her son was sleeping, Red Dog replied that Hugh was awake and watching television. From those remarks, it was clear to Elsa that Red Dog had already been to her home that night and had already spoken with her son. She continued driving home, and when they arrived, the house was quiet. The lights were off in the den, so she assumed that Hugh had gone back to bed and asked Red Dog to talk to him another time. Red Dog then told Elsa Pennington that her son had been tied up and was in the basement. He also told her that her son was in danger from some men who would be coming to her home that night. Uh, okay. He huh. then took Elsa into the master bedroom at knife point, used the clothesline to tie her to the bed and raped her. Elsa Pennington remained tied to the bed throughout the night and was repeatedly sexually assaulted by Red Dog. <sighs> Um, in the morning, Red Dog made Elsa call her employer to say that she would not be coming to work that day. Noticing a strange tone of voice, her employer asked Elsa if she wanted the police. Elsa indicated yes, so her employer called the police. Wow. I'm pretty sure, I don't know if my boss would do that. <laughs> yeah, that, that uh, was a really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, humane kind when just that she noticed or the employer noticed that she had a strange tone of voice or that she wasn't acting normal yeah are you okay knowing that yeah 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 that is yeah very cool yeah once she hung up the phone red dog still armed with the knife forced elsa to leave with him she purposely left her purse on the kitchen table to be found. But by the time the police arrived, Ailsa and Red Dog were gone. Red Dog had forced Ailsa Pennington to get into her car and he drove her to a farmhouse in rural Sussex County. There he raped her again throughout the day. At dusk, he took a loaded rifle from the farmhouse and ordered her to drive him to a friend's residence near Millsboro, Delaware. When they arrived, Red Dog went inside to use the telephone. Convinced that he had her under complete control, he left Elsa with the knife and the rifle in the car. Elsa recognized that this was her moment to escape, and she did just that. Yeah! Good for her. Way to go, Elsa! (laughs) (sighs) One of the witnesses in the house later said that on seeing Elsa leave, Red Dog said words to the effect of, oh my God, she knows. When Uh his friend asked, knows what? He replied, quote, She knows what happened. I killed somebody, unquote. He then asked his friend for directions and ran out the back door. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) Which way should I go to get away from the popo? (laughs) Sir? (laughs) Sir, are you? What? What is happening? (laughs) Where are we? What is this? (laughs) So Elsa stopped at the first lighted establishment she encountered and the police were called. She was flown to the Christiana Medical Center and examined for sexual assault. She also gave a detailed statement to the police. When the police had arrived earlier that day at the Pennington residence in response to Elsa's employer's telephone call, they found Hugh's body in the basement workshop. It was later determined that Hugh had died of massive internal bleeding. In the process of nearly decapitating him, Red Dog had cut Hugh's right carotid artery and left jugular vein, as well as transected his larynx. It's likely that Hugh bled to death quickly and wasn't aware of the additional wounds Red Dog was inflicting on him. The police recovered many items of physical evidence from the Pennington premises. Hugh Pennington's bloody pajama top was found with two buttons missing in his mother's bedroom closet. The buttons were recovered in the kitchen. A pair of blood-soaked socks were found in the washing machine. Hmm. 
bloody footprints were discovered on a rug and on the basement steps. Heritage brand Cigarettes and Butts, a brand that Red Dog was known to smoke, were found in the master bedroom as well as lengths of rope tied to the bed and a coil of rope under the bed. According to an FBI footprint expert, several bloody footprints left at the Pennington residence match the characteristics of Red Dog's feet. This is the, what year is this? I forgot. 80s, uh, 90s? 90s, 91. I only bring this up to if footprint experts. It's, it's junk science. That's bullshit, right? Am I the only um, one to think that? <laughs> I don't know that it's total bullshit. Um, I mean, you can take a footprint and say, well, it's the same size. Yeah. You know? Okay. Fair. True. I spoke too soon. <laughs> Let's act like this never happened. Okay. Several long strands of human hair, microscopically consistent with Red Dog's hair, were found on the bed in the master bedroom and on the floor of Hugh's bedroom. Though hair identification is kind of considered junk science now, the fact that it was at least consistent with Red Dog's hair didn't rule him out and did act as a support for the other evidence. I like that. Yeah, that's kind of like the same thing with the footprints. Like, yeah, it's similar. It's you not know, definitive. Doesn't but rule it, them out. It, it helps. Yeah. It <laughs> yeah. helps. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if the the footprints were like size five we got him. and yeah. he's size thirteen, then there's no way he made those footprints. Right, you know? <laughs> right, 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 right. Anyway, right. in the basement, the police found a used roll of duct tape with a bloody fingerprint on the inside, later identified as red dogs. Oh, that is that is a good one. Uh-huh. You can't deny that. Yep, yeah. you cannot. Latex gloves and a piece of paper labeled guest check with directions to Baltimore were also discovered in the basement. Police ascertained that the guest check had been given to Red Dog earlier in the day of February 9th, 1991. Four days later, police were able to locate Red Dog, who was walking in Wilmington and took him into custody. So now we're going to get into the trial. Hit it, Beth. On February 21st, 1991, Red Dog was indicted for rape and murder. He pleaded innocent on March 7th, 1991, after which the Superior Court Judge Norman A. Barron ordered him to undergo psychiatric evaluations to see if he was fit for trial. Evaluations and preparation for trial took quite some time, but in the end, Red Dog's 1992 trial did not take place as he ended up pleading no contest on March 12th, 1992 to charges of murder, kidnapping, and rape against the advice of his attorney and his wife, who wanted him to go to trial. Red Dog did insist, though, that he was drunk and did not remember the killing. So okay. it didn't happen, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, I did all that shit when I was, like, so drunk, I don't remember anything. I, I don't, there... Yeah, don't, I don't, I don't buy it. <laughs> believe me, believe me. The court rejected his suggestion of memory loss because within 24 hours of Hugh Pennington's murder, Red Dog had written a note to his wife, which began, quote, I went crazy last night and killed Hugh, unquote. Oh, <laughs> love you too. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Maybe that was their love language. I don't know if they wrote notes to each other frequently of, you know, I love you. I hope you have a good day. I went crazy uh, last night and killed yeah, you. I went crazy last night and killed you. <laughs> Kisses. XOXO. At the, at the penalty hearing. Wow. That is, I, I don't. Man, um, Red Dog is interesting. I'll get into it. Yeah, <laughs> takeaways. Yeah. Red Dog's attorneys presented mitigation evidence, specifically that he was intoxicated when he murdered Hugh Pennington, that he had a history of alcoholism and drug abuse, and that he had mental health issues. 
Hugh's sister, Sage Pennington Taylor, testified to the emotional trauma which her brother's death had caused her. They'd been very close. She had to undergo counseling to help her cope with Hugh's death. She had trouble sleeping and she missed her brother terribly. Ultimately, the judge decided that Red Dog, based on his lengthy criminal history, was incorrigible and that he constituted a dangerous threat to society. Red Dog was sentenced to death. The death sentence was automatically appealed to the state Supreme Court, though this was not at Red Dog's request. Red Dog said that as a Sioux Indian of the Lakota tribe, he did not want to appeal his sentence because he believed that doing so would violate his warrior's code. And uh, we wonder if any of our Lakota listeners can confirm whether or not this is a thing or, or did Red Dog just really want to die and created his own personal belief to support it? Uh, so get at us. We, we, we'd like to know. Please, please, please. Now, in any case, uh, Red Dog refused to participate in any appeals. In response, his lawyers filed a motion asking the court to order psychiatric and psychological tests to determine whether he was mentally competent or possibly suicidal in his desire for the death penalty. This is wild to me because if somebody if somebody wants to die, we have a weird we're weird about death in, we're pretty in, weird. in the yeah. United States. Uh, you you <laughs> have to carry, you have to risk death and the death of your child to give birth but we love the death penalty but only if we decide you know like <laughs> you can't break up with me i'm breaking up with you <laughs> what <Yeah. laughs> red dog had previously been diagnosed by a psychiatrist with antisocial personality disorder another psychiatrist had diagnosed him with a personality disorder with narcissistic and antisocial traits i I think it's pretty much the same i think yeah yeah Yeah, he's a psychopath yeah there's there's room there's room for all of it now although the delaware superior court judge accepted that such a personality disorder might be affecting red dog he did not accept that it made him unaware of what he was doing the judge said that he found no evidence showing that red dog was incompetent and that quote the court will respect the rationally based wishes of the condemned prisoner unquote. The death sentence was upheld in November of 1992 and March 3rd, 1993 was set as the date for Red Dog's death by lethal injection. By the way, prior to the abolition of the death penalty, Delaware had one of the highest per capita execution rates in the U.S. There Whoa! were 24 executions in Delaware prior to 1972 to 76, the years during which the federal government struck down, then later reinstated the death penalty. Since 1976, there have only been about 16 executions in Delaware. Capital punishment in Delaware was abolished after being declared unconstitutional by the Delaware Supreme Court on August 2nd, 2016. Wow. What took you guys so long? <laughs> now, <laughs> let's get into where are they now? Well, I'll tell you. In March of 1993, as prison officials began to prepare the execution chamber at the Delaware Correctional Center in Smyrna, Red Dog started preparations for his afterlife. He requested the assistance of John H. Morset, a tribal spiritual leader of Poplar, Montana. Prison officials had initially balked at having John there, saying that only a prison chaplain would be allowed inside the chamber. Uh, but then they later approved it. Um, and that's really annoying and stupid. I agree. Um, I agree. Only, only certain, certain yeah. religions are allowed to be recognized. That's ridiculous. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Fucking Absolutely. ridiculous. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This nation. Um, 
we say you get religious religious freedom, but only only some religions. religions. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. So after receiving his death rites from John, now in the death chamber, Red Dog thanked his family and friends, especially his public defender. Edward Pankowski Jr. for their support and kindness and then said to the remaining witnesses, quote, as for the rest of you, you all can kiss my ass. <laughs> Unquote. <laughs> wow. Okay, okay. Now, his okay. La- oh, there's more. He said more. Okay. His last words were, quote, I'm going home, babe. Unquote. <laughs> Which was said to his wife, Bonnie, who was sitting in the observation area. Oh, my God. Wow. I I would not want those to be my last words. Which part? The ass part or else I'm going home? Um, (laughs) You could kiss my ass. I think I would say that. uh, I might say that. Yeah. 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 But not the I'm going home, babe. (laughs) Yeah. But, and, and also, if I was getting sentenced to death, it would probably be for something like activism or like a good yeah. thing, right? Like the history books would say, Wendy did a good thing. So when she said, kiss my ass, she's, that's amazing. That's but awesome. when this guy did something really bad, <laughs> really awful and heinous, uh, the kiss my ass part doesn't have as much. No, no, the chef's no, kiss is not missing. the oomph. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking maybe my final words would be, bye. Oh, my God. Of course they would. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god okay i better anyway, remember that okay <laughs> so red dog was executed by lethal injection in delaware on march 3rd 1993 the second person to be executed in delaware since the state had resumed executions after the federal reinstatement of capital punishment in 1976 the first was in 1992 as a result of Red Dog's crimes, then Delaware Senator Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., <laughs> who was at the time headed the state judiciary committee, introduced legislation that would require federal officials to notify states when dangerous criminals were placed in their jurisdictions, even if they were in the witness protection program. Hmm. Yeah. Elsa Pennington lived to the age of 70 when she passed on Wednesday, August 13th, 2008. According to her obituary, she graduated from Wilmington Friends High School, Wilson College, and the University of Michigan. She had a long career in hotel management. She was an avid reader and an excellent swimmer. Her greatest joy was spending the summers at the lake surrounded by her family. That's beautiful. She is survived by her husband, her daughter, and son-in-law, two grandchildren, two sisters, and a brother. So rest in power, queen. Um, So now we're going to get into our takeaways and what we think made... James Allen Red Dog Snap. What do you got, Beth? Well, again, I feel like I'm a broken record. No, uh, you're not. Because not enough not enough outlets say it when they yeah. talk about crime and when bad things happen That's in our true. society. Yeah. So a lot of people say, say they're just monsters. I don't know. Yep. yep. No, there's <laughs> so, a little more to it. Yeah. Again, generational trauma, a shitty childhood, and systemic oppression and racism were definitely a factor. As always, I say this not as an excuse to him, but as an explanation. If we're ever to eradicate this kind of behavior, we have to understand it first so we know what not to do. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Anyway, I thought it was interesting how in the first crime, he was just kind of along for the ride. 
they were just gonna go get some beer and then boom it's a murder (laughs) (laughs) yep (laughs) the crimes just progressively got worse and worse but he was usually committing the crimes along with other people not necessarily the main perpetrator Um, right right somebody else starts it and he just yeah goes along with it yeah until the last one where yeah. he by himself just straight up rapes and murders. Yeah. And I, I can't help but think that our good old American justice system had a hand in making everything worse. Yeah, there were a lot of mistakes made along the way. And yeah. um, I am not ashamed. I'm a prison abolitionist. I'm a, a police ab- abolitionist. And people always ask, well, what if somebody comes in and kills your whole family? Now, we've said this before, murder is like a serial being killed by a serial killer is very rare. Um, But that said, most crimes are not murder. Most crimes are theft and, and, and things like that. Crimes of survival. Right. And, you know, when somebody steals something from you, do you want them to get locked up or do you want your stuff back? Like there has to be a different conversation other than just putting people away. And a different way of dealing with these types of crimes Yeah, so that they don't, because what happens is they get sent to prison, Uh spend time in prison, learn how to be a better criminal. You know, they go to criminal college and then they come back and they're worse (laughs) and they're worse. And we don't, is that what we want? That's not what Mm. we want. We right. want people to be rehabilitated, or at least mm-hmm. I do. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I do too. And I think yeah. there's, I, th- there has to be that. There's right? got to be a better if way. Somebody, yeah, if somebody yeah. attacks you or hurts you, what do, what is the real solution? What's the real problem? What's the we identify yeah. it? Then we can identify the real solution. Right, now he right. told us how why he snapped. He said it was poverty on his reservation. Um. And that's what led to his crimes later in shitty, life. Shitty childhood. And, yep, and, and shit, yep. poverty mm-hmm. also uh, contributed to, you know, his, his situation. Parents, right. His parents right. not being able to function. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. And that has to do with, uh, to your point, that generational trauma. His parents weren't, I'm sure... Maybe I mean, as some, and I say this, don't cut this out as somebody who has struggled with substance use and uh, particularly drinking too much. Uh, people are drinking too much because it's fun. Like it might be yeah. fun at first, but it really is because of pain, pain, yeah. trying to escape pain. That's what human beings do generally yeah. to survive, escape pain. Um, he said, uh, and so about his parents, um, they were in a really um, bad position. They were dealt a really bad hand. And I don't even know without um, intervention by the government or the perpetrators of or the people who um, put the, the, their people in these positions without any intervention or reparation or repair or fixing of the problems that were created if there could have been a way out um, yeah. for his parents and eventually James Red Dog and yeah. the people left in his wake. Now, um, he also added that there were no jobs and he could only make a living on crime. And to that, I say, yes, that part. <laughs> um, and um, like I said, the conversation about crime and punishment is all wrong. We have to we have to think of this all in, in a different way. These are systems created by people. So 
you know, they and can they be were created, rebuilt. you know, hundreds of years ago. Right. And we're still we're still using the same still type of system. It needs to be outdated. definitely modernized. Our thinking needs to be modernized on this. I couldn't agree more. That's yeah. my friend, Beth. <laughs> Isn't she amazing? <laughs> um, and if people had what they needed to thrive, not just barely survive, crime, I think, would be almost eliminated, period. Yeah. Um, and we're human beings. And some of us will say, you know, some of us are just not going to be shit. Some of us are just going to stay ain't shit. But for the most part, um, if we don't have to consider weighing prison time or hurting someone else just to get baby formula or right. do those 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 simple things or diapers, people go to people get locked up for stealing diapers. Yeah, um, because they need diapers. Because they need diapers. <laughs> um, if 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 we had what we needed, those those crimes of survival and opportunity that can escalate to yeah. violence you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be a problem. So that's yeah. my thought. Well, good, um, one. good one. Wendy for president 2024. <laughs> now, let's, just kidding. <laughs> my past is so filthy. <laughs> so <clears throat> no, I wouldn't make it past the first round. So uh, now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So it's kind of interesting. I I put this tip in before I knew anything about James Allen Red Dog's situation, okay. but I feel like it kind of applies. All right. Um, or maybe it doesn't. But this tip comes from an episode of Wild Black, our, our pod pals over at Wild Black, who are now, by the way, on uh, P, Sean P. Diddy Combs oh. um, podcast network nice. revolt. Um, but uh, it's Wild Black episode and they interviewed a black police officer turned civil rights attorney who talked about how to stay alive during a traffic stop. Um, if you have multiple people in the car, everybody has a job. One person turns their camera on. One person calls 911 to narrate the situation and get it on record because those calls are recorded. And if you are the driver, Provide your information, license registration, ask for permission to grab it, and then turn it over and shut your fucking mouth. Just be silent. Yeah. You can say respectfully. Now, and this this is geared mostly towards black people. Hello. Right. And tell your black friends that if you care about them and you don't want yeah. them to get killed. You can respectfully, you can say respectfully, officer, I don't answer any questions. That's our Fifth Amendment right. We don't have to. If you were not committing a crime, then you don't have to talk to them. Don't hmm. even ask. Don't even ask why they pulled you over. That's our tendency. And I've, been, I've only been pulled over with old whitey. And that is the first question. Hey, why did you pull me over? How dare you? And I'm just thinking, wow. I'm going to die today. Anyway. Yeah. So I would never say that. Ask. I would never. <laughs> I would. Man, just, white men are different. Officer. White men in these streets are really different. I mean, but wow. for the rest of us who are not white men, if you get pulled over, don't just keep the conversation to a minimum because you can agitate police and police are scared. They're cowards. And um, I don't feel bad about saying this because this officer on Wild Black said it. They're dummies. They're not very smart. Um, and so if you agitate somebody who's already scared and stupid and this person also has the ability to kill you and get away with it, don't do it. Just keep the conversation to a minimum. Take the ticket. Record everything that you can um, so you can get home 
to fight administratively or in civil court. Get the number of the vehicle. Don't don't try to memorize the license plate. Police officers' cars always have like a two or three digit number on the side. Look at that. Look at their name tag. Don't ask, what is your badge number? What is your name? Because that <laughs> agitates them and they will kill you. So just take a mental note. Look and take a note. Look at it. And when, as soon as you are able to, um, if you get away safely, get your phone, your phone out and open up that notes app and document everything as, as fresh as it can possibly be in your mind so that you can use it later to file the appropriate paperwork to make whatever complaint you need to make because people are starting to track police misconduct in this country. And mm. so if you have a record, use it. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, if you're pulled over, uh, if you personally can call 911 while they're pulling you over or get to a place that's visible that has surveillance cameras, just so there's extra record of what actually happened right. to protect yourself because yeah. you just want to make it out of there alive. Yeah. Um, and uh, thanks. So uh, what's next? Oh, my God. God, my favorite shout out time. <laughs> this is where we shout out any content by or about any marginalized, othered or minoritized people and any true crime goodies. Um, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but it is so compelling. This is the true crime thing. I don't uh, this is a, an uh, aspect of true crime I've never seen before. I've survived a crime on Netflix. And it yes, is I have multiple it. stories, multiple yeah. people, multiple cities, all Videos. over the place. Videos. Yeah. Um, and it is really, um, it is a really great program. What do you got? That's all you're going to say? That's it? Yeah, you <laughs> said. Right. Shut the fuck up, Wendy. Don't you <laughs> I remember? That. I cried. I my eyes are all that. swollen and puffy. You hurt my feelings. <laughs> I'm going to talk about my with my therapist about this. Anyway, you go ahead. It's your no, turn. I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, Beth has never hurt my feelings. It's a record. Everybody hurts my feelings, but Beth has never done it. <laughs> um, so I was going to shout out Dark Winds on AMC+. Have you huh? watched that yet? Never even heard of it. What? It's a mystery slash crime thriller series based on the Leaphorn and Chi novels by Tony Hillerman. And the story oh. follows Joe Leaphorn and Jim Chi, two Navajo police officers in the 1970s Southwest. Yeah, so far it's really good. I've watched a few episodes and, and uh, it's set on the Navajo Nation. And the, the protagonists are the indigenous people. Yes. Okay. It's almost all uh, Native American people. Ooh, I love it already. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. Okay. Okay. I also found a list of native TV shows and movies to check out, and I'll put oh, that in the show notes so you right can on, uh, right check on. those out. And then I Thank have a you. true crime goodie. Uh, oh, what is The this? House of Hammer on Discovery Plus. Have you watched Army that yet? Army Hammer? Yes. Oh, my it's God. Not, it's not about just Army Hammer, but his whole family. His whole All family those... is fucking nuts. It <laughs> sounds like it. And yeah. oh, my God, now that it has your ringing endorsement, I have to watch. Yeah, I'm you not have going to. to sleep tonight. Screw <laughs> it. What job? I don't care. I have to watch this House of Hammer on Discovery Plus. I don't even know if I have Discovery Plus, but I'm going to get it and I'm going to watch it tonight. Now, that is just a recap. I survived a crime on Netflix. Dark Winds on AMC Plus. 
um, a list of native TV shows and movies to check out that will be in the show notes. And another true crime goodie, The House of Hammer on Discovery. Don't ask why I'm tired tomorrow. Now, uh, <laughs> where can... That's it for today. But uh, until next time, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Oh my God, that's so true. Everything she said. <laughs> this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows